Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. This is episode 22. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma, your host of this program with my co-host, my our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Glenn. And hello to you, Christina. How are you? Great. Peachy. Oh, <laughs> I'm peachy. <laughs> That's a good choice of words. I wonder where that came from. Uh, greetings, everyone, and welcome to a Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your guide today as we travel through the healthcare galaxy looking for ways toward optimal health. I'm very excited about today, Christina. Um, I would think you should be. Yes, it's taking me back to my roots. We're, we're going literally. To <laughs> <laughs> oh yes. Uh, we have yeah. just had too much fun before this all started today. Um, usually, we have we allow everyone to watch our pre-show, um, but recently we've just started the show. So, uh, one of these days we're going to be able to show you our pre-show again. But we have a lot of fun before this ha starts, and then we have more fun when it continues, <laughs> and then we even have more fun when it ends. <laughs> Well, today we're going to be exploring uh, one of my favorite worlds in emergency medicine. Uh, that's going to be our topic today. And we're going to be talking with a longtime friend and colleague, uh, Dr. David Tufankian. He's a medical director. He's a regional medical director, which means he's a director of medical directors of emergency departments uh, in various parts of the country. Uh, with a large group, and he is also an emergency medicine doctor. Mm. So there's so many things to talk about. I could introduce him for a half hour, but I would much rather have the conversation. So I would like to introduce you now to my very good friend, Dr. David Tufankian. This is Christina, David. Good morning, Christina. And good, good morning, Glenn. Morning. Glad good. to be on this morning. And we're honored to have you, my goodness, Director of Directors of Directors. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Dave, as the medical guide for the show, I usually like to tell our viewers the path we hope to take. But just like everything in emergency medicine, we have no clue what's coming in, where it's going and what we're going to do. But I would like to start uh, with your basic journey, telling people why you became a healer, what influenced you, when it happened. And give us, a, give us your story to bring us up to date of how it started and what got you to where you are today. Well, you know, unlike a lot of the residents that I interview for jobs who are very focused and, and have this uh, pathway that they've worked out, you know, I was a good student. I uh, went to college but didn't have a real idea of what I wanted to do. I went to a liberal arts college, Occidental College, good school. And I was always interested in science, um, was a bio major with a, actually plant science sort of uh, interest, but really didn't know what I wanted to do. I volunteered um, in college and uh, got interested in medicine. Uh, but unlike one of my college classmates who knew he wanted to be a surgeon since age eight and pursued that, I really didn't want know what I wanted to do. And I... I uh, actually had a big uh, debate with myself whether I wanted to be a dentist or go into medicine. 
and took a year off in between college and during that time did more volunteer work, went to school and applied to medical school. And then the same thing happened in medical school. I didn't know what emphasis I wanted to um, pursue. I liked everything. I liked all my rotations, but, you know, I didn't like a lot of the uh, clinic stuff with surgery or ortho or, you know, just delivering babies or just just doing pediatrics, just doing internal medicine. And so I thought a lot about family medicine. And uh, then I did an emergency medicine rotation. And I thought, oh, this is it. You know, I really like this. And so um, was able to get into an emergency medicine residency at L.A. County USC Medical Center, which is one of the largest and oldest uh, ER residencies in the country, and uh, was able to complete that. And, you know, and I, I'm so happy I went into emergency medicine and became a, a physician. It's just a, a, been a wonderful career in life so far. What do you think it is that attracts people to uh, our specialty of emergency medicine? You know, um, I think it's, well, first of all, it's it's just great. You get to help people all the time. Um, I don't have to justify what I do. Every time I go into work, I'm, I'm doing good things. Um, but also, it's just such a challenge. It, you know, intellectually, you, you know, people often don't come in with their diagnosis and you get to figure out what's going on. You get to help people. You get to do some procedures. I get to sew things up. I put shoulders back in place. You know, uh, two nights ago I was working, I got to cardiovert somebody. So they had a really fast mm -hmm. heart rate and they were having chest pain and, you know, give them this a little electrical shock and get their heart back into a regular rhythm. And you get to do all these interventions and, uh, you know, it's 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 just a great uh, um, specialty. On the other hand, I think that a lot of us have attention deficit disorders. You know, you you work on something intensively, and then you go on to the next thing. And so, personality-wise, I'm not the sort of person that's let me think about the 17 things that can cause this problem. I'm thinking, hey, what is going to kill him here in the next few minutes? What's going to kill him in the next half hour and down the line? Uh, you know, so it's a different way of thinking. Also, your um, ability to multitask and process things has to be different than other branches of medicine. I'm constantly getting interrupted in the ED. Um, I'm taking care of eight to sometimes 12 patients at the same time, some of them uh, severely ill. Um, and so it's, it's a sort of a unique mindset and skill set in emergency medicine. But I think also people that go into emergency medicine also have outside lives. You know, for most people, they're on and they're off. And so, you know, I know that uh, if my Andrew, our, our son, he has a tennis match and I, I, uh, I'm going to be off and be able to watch it. Versus other specialties where, you know, I'm on call all the time. I'm getting woken up when I'm not on call. You know, when you're in emergency medicine, for the most part, you're working, you're intensely working. And when you're off, you're off. So I, I think there's a different mindset. Um, and I think it's a great specialty. Not everybody can do it. But I couldn't do um, internal medicine or 
surgery either so by themselves. Yeah, that's that's true. It it is a special person that goes into this, and I, I want to say something right at the beginning here. As as we talk about emergency medicine and go through many of the things that we do and see, when I made an announcement, uh, you know, through some social networking that I was going to be interviewing you and talking about emergency medicine, I heard from a number of the nurses that I had worked with when I first started my career 30 years ago. A number of them uh, contacted me and brought back some great memories. And it mm. made me realize that the progression of emergency medicine, with emergency medicine as a specialty and doctors becoming emergency medicine specialists, also the nurses were very important. Emergency medicine is really a team sport. And at the beginning, the nurses were the same as the doctors. We, we knew our medicine, but we didn't really know emergency medicine. And all of the nurses were learning at the same time. They were great nurses. They knew how to do nursing and make sure that uh, drugs were given correctly and proper dosages and patients were taken care of. But over the years, we've watched the nurses become uh, more specialized in emergency medicine and without them and without all of the people that worked in the emergency department, the clerks, the people in housekeeping, other parts of the hospital, laboratories, x-ray, all of these people, uh, people like David and I wouldn't be able to do the, the wonderful work that's being done there. Mm -hmm. So that being said, uh, do you have any thoughts about that, Dave? Well, I, I do. And I think that it's a unique situation where we're working um, the interaction between the nursing staff and, and the physicians, as well as the ancillary services, our clerks, our lab techs, our x-ray techs, EKG, respiratory, everybody is really unique. I mean, you know, for inpatient hospital care, you know, the specialist comes in, they see the patient, they leave, they write orders, and we're there the whole time interacting with the patients and and uh, especially the nursing staff. So it really is a unique uh, setting. And we have to trust each other and and, uh, and listen to each other. Um, and that's so important. And, 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 you know, that's one of the things I enjoy about going to the emergency department. I, uh, I look forward to it. Uh, I mean, it's chaotic and stressful. And, and uh, of course, you know, sometimes I, you know, I'm tired. And, oh, okay, you know, uh, grumbling a little bit. But, you know, I, I mean, 99% of the time, I'm looking forward and happy to go to work. And, and part of that is working with the excellent people that I work with. Yeah. And, and there are so many times that uh, someone from another area might be helpful in coming us to, up to us. A person taking, uh, so drawing some blood from the lab might come back to us and say, you know, while I was in there drawing the blood, the patient said this to their husband or wife and something and it gives us a little extra information that sometimes we didn't get mm. that help help us in making a diagnosis yeah yes <laughs> we count on everybody there that's one of the things that we learn in emergency medicine is to you know count on on everyone for all the information we can get because it is critical and and like uh david has said sometimes you only have seconds or minutes to make big decisions. Mm -hmm. David, what do you think emergency medicine as a specialty has brought to the whole picture of medicine as a profession, as a field, and uh, just the healthcare in general? 
Well, I think it, it, it has impacted uh, on people's health incredibly. And, the, you know, the house of medicine with the different specialties, um, it, I mean, 30, 40 years ago, it used to be an emergency department. There was a nurse there and some doctor from the community would be on call and somebody would come in and a nurse would, you know, sort of evaluate the patient and then an internist or family practice or cardiologist or whoever happened to be on call for the emergency department would come in and depending on what the problem was and who the clinician was, uh, you might get very different evaluations and treatments. You know, if it's an internist uh, coming in and you were having uh, trouble breathing and chest pain, uh, that would be perfect. If it was a baby having seizures or a woman who's having a miscarriage or a stab wound to the abdomen, mm. and if it's an internist, you know, that might not be the appropriate or most appropriate person to, to intervene and take care of the patient. So the evolution of emergency medicine, uh, I think, has really uh, positively impacted patient care. I, I mean, it's overwhelming when you think about it because basically you have to be able to evaluate, uh, start treatment, and stabilize anything that comes in. And that's, you know, you can be in the smallest emergency department that's supposed to be very slow, quote unquote, uh, and then have, you know, the most complex, difficult case come in, uh, mm -hmm. either by the, uh, you know, the uh, car that screeches up to the ED and dumps a body out and honks and and drives off, uh, or, you know, the ambulance uh, traffic that comes in that's really complex. So mm -hmm. um, I think it, it really has impacted. And, you know, that first initial evaluation and starting treatment early for a lot of uh conditions is so important. Um, and if things in certain conditions, if they're delayed or the diagnosis isn't um, made, um, the morbidity, the, you know, the, the problems with the care and the mortality, the death rate can go way up. So I think emergency medicine, it, you know, it, it started becoming, becoming a specialty actually in the 70s. Um, and now is, you know, uh, uh, regular board certification and, and uh, um, you know, uh, I think it's, it's been a great addition to the House of Medicine. Mm -hmm. I have a, a question to both of you. Um, is this emergency care medicine, is it mainly in the U.S. or do you find it expanding across the globe into different countries as well? Yeah, and there's been a big movement uh, with that. In in Britain, it's uh, the accident and emergency wards. But uh, more and more across the country, or, or excuse me, across the world, um, uh, there's specialty training programs in emergency medicine. Uh, yes, so I think it's, it's become recognized um, and accepted and become the standard of care to have uh, that sort of training. Mm, yeah, and it's also very interesting to uh, notice that as as med emergency medicine grew as a specialty, the conferences that we went to and the educational programs that were teaching us, you got to see change. Most of us at the very beginning, there were no emergency medicine conferences, nor were there any books on emergency medicine. So if we wanted to learn how to read an x-ray, we had to go to a radiology conference. If we wanted to learn about cardiology, 
uh, and heart problems, we went to a cardiology conference. And now, aside from the major growth in, in the specialty and conferences, we also have international conferences where we share with people around the world that are practicing emergency medicine. Mm. That's true. Mm. Brilliant. Dave, uh, stress. You deal with that in the emergency department? <laughs> I, I've read about that. You know, usually when I'm having my uh, iced tea in, in, in the hammock, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's okay. You know, that's one of the, the um, interesting things. You know, people go, oh, it's really stressful. And it's like, well, it is stressful. But on the other hand, that's what I trained in. And so I have a systematic way of evaluating patients and, and treating them. So that helps. I mean, obviously, having good training uh, helps the stress level. But the emergency department is inherently stressful in that it's unscheduled care. Uh, some of the things that I find most stressful are, is, you know, it's busy, you're packed, there's people in the waiting room, and people just keep coming in by ambulance. And you know, that's not something that you can control. And so I think that's the one of the most stressful things for me is uh, having patients that I I just can't see or there isn't room to, to put them in a bed and, and see them just because all of a sudden we get uh, 15 patients in a one-hour period that come in. Um, <clears throat> and, and then just not having some of the resources, especially mental health resources in the community. Uh, and, and this is not just our community. This is nationally, worldwide, really. Um, you know, there's certain things that I can help and take care of or stabilize, but then it's not really a long-term fix and I can't, I can't get them into care. Uh, and, and of course the emergency department, we see everything and everybody we love seeing whoever comes in with what, and many times we can take care of them and send them home. But there are other times someone might need to have surgery, so we have to admit them to the hospital and put them into a surgical unit. Sometimes they have uh, critical care problems, so they need to be stabilized, maybe put on a respirator and admitted to a hospital. But within the emergency medicine system, there's also levels of centers. Uh, there could be a rural center that has maybe two beds in it and uh, one nurse, as David talked about, or somewhere like a county hospital, a major mm. uh, trauma center where they have 20 or 30 nurses, they have scribes, they have multiple physicians, uh, everyone's working in there. And sometimes it has to do also with the hospital itself is what a hospital is capable of taking care of. If somebody needs uh, say, open-heart surgery, and, and a patient comes in to the emergency department, you make the diagnosis, and you stabilize them, you now have to get them to another facility. And that becomes another issue that we have to talk about. And, and David alluded to that with uh, patients that have mental or psychiatric illnesses, where these people are, we, we assume and we determine that they're a danger or harmful to themselves or to others, so they can't be sent home. Mm. And they have to be somewhere. And some of the most difficult parts of emergency medicine is not emergency medicine. It's the babysitting or the transporting. I know we have stories of, of people that we've had to keep in our emergency department for first hours and then days. What's the longest amount of time you've ever had to keep someone in an emergency department, David? <clears throat> well, well, medically at 
you know, I've had patients that have been in the e emergency department two or three days um, with chest pain, having the heart attack ruled out, having other tests, and then a stress test or something, and then discharged. Now, that's at a big inner city hospital um, where there are just, they're just no beds in the hospital. It's all full. But recently, we had a psychiatric patient in the emergency department for nine days. Wow. And, you know, that's really not optimal. They aren't really getting a, appropriate care. Um, uh, but we couldn't get them into a psychiatric facility for a variety of different reasons. Um, they were suicidal. wasn't safe to send them home. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a big, big problem. It, it is interesting, uh, just as a side note, uh, people get the idea that, oh, I have insurance so I can get care. And that's true. And the emergency department will see anybody, will take care of them. But it doesn't mean that we have the specialist on call. Um, and, and in fact, in some cities, for instance, say you have a complex hand injury and need a hand surgeon, a hand specialist. Well, there are some cities where all the hand surgeons have resigned from the medical staffs. You know, they have their own surgery centers and they view the hospital and being on call for the emergency department as just a liability. And so uh, you can have really good insurance and not necessarily get the care that you'd like um, because of the medical legal system, the high risk of the on-call physician for um, um, for legal, you know, action or malpractice. And so that's an interesting evolution of what's happened in, in medicine over the years. You know, it brings up an interesting point. Uh, do you think that Emergency medicine as a specialty is outpacing other facets of healthcare, where we're making diagnoses and we're determining treatments, but the treatments aren't available. Well, that's that's a tough one, Glenn. You know, I mean, you don't think I'm going to ask easy questions, do you? Well, why would you do that? Um, <laughs> exactly. That that is interesting. Of course, if you look in in the you know, current journal or, you know, th there are always novel or new treatment modalities or paradigms that are coming up. And um, sometimes the emergency medicine specialist is at the forefront of, of what, what some of those evaluations and treatments are. Um, so it's really variable. You know, being a jack of all trades you know, you know a lot about different specialties in medicine, and you can go so many steps, and then, then you need that specialist to take over. Um, so, you know, it's it's very interesting what's going to happen in medicine, and I don't think anybody really knows because there's only so many resources out there, and the expectations of patients um, are sometimes really unrealistic. And uh, also, you know, th th there is some line in the sand that has to be drawn at some point for, you know, what, it, how far you're going to go with treatments or evaluations. Uh, and, th and, that's, and that's one of the difficult and, and part of the art of medicine is dealing with those issues. Yeah, I think that uh, that's going to be one of the things that 
influences people uh, when they know, when they start understanding this, I think more and more people will start taking care of themselves in a better manner. Uh, and we're seeing that now. We're seeing people that are more health conscious about the foods they're eating and exercise and a number of other things. So I think people are uh, starting to understand a little bit of that. They know that the emergency department is there. They know it's the, the safety net for everybody. But yeah. I mean, also, ideally, I, ideally, I'd like to not see patients in the emergency department. I mean, <laughs> if, they, if you can prevent, uh, you know, encourage good health, and moderation and things. I mean, gosh, uh, how many of my um, cases that I take care of daily are a direct result of lifestyle choices? Mm. You know, you smoke, you drink, you do meth. You, you know, I mean, <laughs> um, you know, you're, you're uh, 100 pounds overweight, you're sedentary. I mean, you know, those things will catch up with you. You know, you smoke for 50 years and you have shortness of breath. Well, gosh. I can't just, I can help and intervene with the acute problem, but, you know, there's only so much your body can do to, to repair itself. That's an interesting so point. I think at the uh, beginning when we were just learning about emergency medicine and also we were having to learn how to actually dialogue with patients. I remember at the beginning, we didn't want to talk about if someone might've been suicidal, we didn't want to bring that up because it might bring it on. We were afraid of that. And then we started learning that we needed to have conversations with people. So in that light, nowadays, when you see people in the emergency department that have uh, lifestyle issues, and that's part of the reason they're there, do you take some time and speak with them about that? Or do you just deal with the uh, process for why they're there and let their primary care doctor work with well, them? Well, I, I certainly, you know, one of the good things about uh, dealing with lifestyle issues, uh, smoking, activity, you know, drinking, you know, all, weight loss, all those things is when the person comes in with an acute problem, they're a little bit more vulnerable. They're a little bit uh, more apt to listen to you. And so in that period of uh, potential vulnerability, uh, I think that, you know, that's part of our jobs is, is uh, you know, trying to get them to realize that they have an impact on their own health and they need to do what they can to um, uh, better their health. You can't, you can't change heredity. You know, if, you, if your family members, you know, everybody in your family has had a heart attack by age 40 in the past, okay, you can't change that. But you know, with that history, you don't want to smoke. You don't want to, you want to be active. If you have hypertension or diabetes or high cholesterol, you want to deal with those. Now, that doesn't mean necessarily drugs. Um, certain people are going to need to be on medications. But if you can be active, look, uh, you, know, you know, pay attention to what you eat, be moderate and things, you know, you're going to have a better chance of being healthy and not being in the ER. So I think that trying to uh, talk to patients, I mean, every once in a while I get somebody who says, hey, thanks for saving my life. And they're, they're there for a, you know, they're there for uh, stitches in their finger or something. And I go, well, this isn't really a life-threatening problem. And they go, well, you took care of me 
you know, four years ago and I was drunk all the time and falling down and, you know, vomiting blood. And, and, you know, you, you talk to me about stopping drinking and going to AA and so on. And it's like, wow. Okay. You know, so writing on the aftercare instructions, stop drinking. You are killing yourself. Go to AA. <laughs> you, know, uh, 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 you know, sometimes every once in a while somebody listens. And so that's, that's, pretty neat when that happens. Mm -hmm. That is great. I remember, um, you know, so many stories in the emergency department. Uh, I had a gentleman that came in once uh, severely sweating. We call it diaphoretic, where they were just drenched and they uh, were cyanotic or blue in color. They were breathing very rapidly. They were clutching their chest. And we made the appropriate diagnosis of they were having a myocardial infarction or a coronary artery syndrome, a heart attack. And we stabilized them and we knew that they had to be transferred. And once they were stabilized and comfortable, we gave them medications to relax. The pain went away. We got their blood pressure and breathing under control. Now it was a question of waiting for the ambulance to take them to another hospital for more of a, an intervention to put in a stent or something else. And while they were there, and now they're calm and relaxed and everything, I remember the uh, patient said to me, while we're waiting for the ambulance, could I go out for a smoke? <laughs> yep. Oh, my. You know, that, that sounds like that patient was malingering. They were faking it, Glenn, I think. <laughs> they were faking it, definitely. Yeah, yeah. You know, Lock speaking of faking it, <laughs> let's talk about some gallows humor for a minute. Uh, we... <laughs> In the emergency department, and people always hear about that. They talk about gallows humor, making uh, jokes about certain things uh, that are not very jokeable. But this is an important part sometimes in the emergency department to relieve stress and, and to also uh, make people a little more relaxed. And when mm -hmm. they're more relaxed, then it's easier to take care of them. Uh, what are your experiences with things like that? Well, I, I think that that's very true. I mean, we're dealing with sometimes these, these horrific problems. Um, and, and, uh, you know, it takes its toll on, I mean, not only the patients, obviously, but our, uh, the whole emergency department staff. And, um, and obviously I, I, I was joking when I was saying that patient was uh, faking it or malingering, but, um, <laughs> you know, uh, and and I I obviously would not be saying that to that patient, but um, you know <laughs> it it does help relieve stress sometimes. Some of our little jokes that we uh, do um, among ourselves, and uh, certainly we're not um, seriously saying that that patient's faking it or something. But um, I, I think that's just a way to deal with stress, and and uh, there's nothing wrong with that. I think it's it's actually uh, um, healthy to be able to do that. Yeah, because those of us that are doing it are coming from compassion and wanting to take care of, of the patients and having their right. care and concern in our hearts. But it's it, it makes us uh, calmer and it allows us to make better decisions for them. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about uh, some cases. What Do you have a funniest story, funniest case that you remember? Anything come up to mind? Well, the, you know. There's so many interesting cases. I mean, you can take care of an ankle injury, a thousand ankle injuries, and, you know, every one is a little bit different. Uh, and uh, each patient is a little bit different. And, 
you know, one of the fun things about emergency medicine is you you do get to interact and talk to people. Um, you know, I was uh, one of the interesting things though is when I'm at the emergency department, I'm there and I come home and I, you know I'm married and my I have three kids and and it's wonderful, but they don't really see see me practicing emergency medicine. And um, a couple of years ago, we were in an airport. And uh, these three big paramedic guys with their badges are coming up to this woman, and there's a ch- uh, an infant she's holding, and um, they're evaluating the baby, and I'm looking at the the child and the way the child's holding the arm, and uh, I suspect, you know, without getting a history, that this child has what's called a nursemaid's elbow, and that's basically where the elbow isn't fully formed and somebody pulls on the arm, usually accidentally, and the radial head, part of the elbow, comes out of socket a little bit just because it isn't formed properly. It's very easy to put it back. You flex the elbow up, you uh, supinate, and you hear a little pop in the elbow. The kid cries, and then three or four minutes later, they're moving the arm around. And so I walked up. You know, They were going to send this child to a hospital emergency department to get checked. And so I walked up to the mom and introduced myself and, you know, uh, said, here's, you know, based on the history and sure enough, they, they, they pulled, somebody had pulled on the, the older child had pulled on the kid's arm. And it was uh, pretty obvious to me that that was what was going on. And so I explained what I wanted to do and I did it. And the child cried. And then a couple minutes later is moving the arm all around. And that was sort of a fun case just because my uh, my wife, Eileen, and the kids, you know, were able to sort of see that. And uh, and that was sort of neat because uh, at you- home, it's funny because at home, you know, when the kids are growing up and they fall down, you know, I'm sort of standing back and and uh, OK, there's no blood. It's OK. And, you know, they're running to mom for the compassion. It's not that I don't care, but it's it's a different uh I don't know, different interaction or sometimes uh, uh, from the emergency department. So that was sort That's of true. a fun, fun case. I do, I do need to make a special announcement at this time. Those of you viewers that were listening uh, to David's description of the treatment for the nurse made elbow of flexion and supination, please don't try mm-hmm. that at home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is only for you know, professionals. Because there's a mimic there. You can have a fracture just above the elbow called a supercondylar fracture. And, um, you really don't want to be moving somebody's elbow around if they have a fracture like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're an experienced emergency physician, uh, you can do that. But uh, otherwise, I wouldn't do that at, at home. Don't try this at <laughs> home. We're trained, trained professionals, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, we see uh, in the emergency department, we see the entire spectrum of humanity. We see the worst of the worst and the best of the best and everything in between. Uh, do you have any thoughts of when you're in the emergency department or outside about humanity after a shift? Yeah. I mean, we do see horrible things, uh, you know, that happen. Um, and some of them are, you know, as I mentioned, lifestyle choices that people have made, uh, um, which are are sad and frustrating. Uh, but on the other hand, every shift I see heroic things too. I see family members stepping up and have been taking care of uh, patients, uh, concern, 
um, love, uh, you know, that is really fantastic to see. It's overwhelming sometimes. Um, one of the great things about emergency medicine is I walk in and and introduce myself and I'm talking to the patient and the family members. And in a short time, I mean, just a short time, I've got this interaction with people when they're vulnerable. I'm finding out things about them and their health and their feelings that, um, you know, you, you just wouldn't be able to discover uh, otherwise. Mm. And so that's that's really special. Um, and, you know, I mean, we all get frustrated uh, in the emergency department with certain problems that we just can't fix that are recurrent, that are sort of societal uh, issues. Uh, but gosh, over, over, overall, I mean, I'm a very optimistic guy and, uh, you know, that's, we see people stepping up and, uh, and love, you know, all the time. And so that's, that's another great thing that, that is refreshing, you know, and it also, it makes me appreciate, you know, my wife and kids and family, you know, I get upset because one of the kids isn't taking out the trash or emptying the dishwasher, which is one of their jobs. And, you know, they aren't out, you know, getting in fights and doing drugs and, you know, some of these other issues that, that we deal with. So I, I guess I should calm down a little bit there. So, so I take it you haven't seen your children waltz through the emergency department yet. <laughs> well, I've had to sew up both boys. Um, but, uh, not not for anything uh, bad, per se. So that that's good. It's so interesting because as a parent, I always hear other parents say, "Oh, you mean you've never you haven't had to take your son in for you know like he hasn't broken a bone yet or he hasn't you know gotten his stitches yet? No, not yet." <laughs> you know? um, but I do have a question that has come in, uh, David, from a parent. And uh, this person is saying, as a parent, I run into some worrisome situations, but non-emergency. It has been a difficult decision for me to make on whether or not to go to emergency as opposed to waiting until the next day to see a doctor. Do you have any suggestions or thoughts on the matter? Okay. Well, that's, that's always a tough one because there can be subtle presentations of serious problems. Mm -hmm. um, and in, in general, if you phone the emergency department, most emergency departments, their policy is we can't give medical advice over the phone. Um, and, you know, you can call your practitioner or come in and we'll be glad to see you because it's such a high risk um, to to give medical advice over the phone when you don't really know the scenario. Mm -hmm. um, basically, if you're if the child is having uncontrolled if af after an injury, if they're having uncontrolled pain, obviously, if there's a deformity, um, you know, something like that, you probably want to go in and be seen. Mm -hmm. um, a fever by itself doesn't isn't necessarily dangerous. It's nature's way of dealing with infections, and often viruses and bacteria's uh, bacteria can't reproduce at a higher temperature. And so, if a child has a fever and is otherwise feeling okay, um, that doesn't necessarily warrant an emergency visit. Now, in a really small infant, or they're, if they're having trouble breathing. There's persistent vomiting. You know, I don't mean vomiting once and then they seem to be okay. 
um, there, there seemed to be uh, 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 abdominal pain, especially if it's not going away. Um, you know, I mean, all those things, they need to be seen promptly. Um, if you get in to see your, your pediatrician or call your pediatrician and they'll see you in the next few hours, then that's, that may be an option also. Um, so it's hard to give hard and fast rules for every scenario about when you should take your child in. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of it's common sense, but, you know, trouble breathing, severe abdominal pain. I, I mean, I don't mean you have a cramp and you have one episode of diarrhea and then it goes away, but I mean, persistent abdominal pain, especially if it's going down to the right lower abdomen. I mean, that can be appendicitis. So, you know, those are things that we, we want to evaluate and see, yeah. um, head injuries. If you're, you know, they're, they're out of it or they're, they're persistently vomiting. I mean, you know, the, the, you know, those things like that, you, we'd want to see those patients. It doesn't mean that we're going to get a CAT scan on every patient that comes in because with every intervention, there are potential um, complications, you know. And so radiation is something that we're more and more uh, concerned about. And so um, getting a CAT scan of a kid's head or abdomen uh, you know, there's significant radiation involved. And so there have, there has to be specific reasons and criteria for getting those tests. We don't want to just order those willy nilly. Same thing with antibiotic therapy. It's off the, off the question, but you know, a lot of times we get parents coming in or, or adults coming in expecting antibiotics or wanting antibiotics. And if it really looks like a viral illness, we don't want to prescribe antibiotics. There's, Mm -hmm side effects of the antibiotics, uh, there's increasing resistance, there's potential allergic reactions, you know, so um, that's a little different subject, but, but uh, you know, if, if you're in doubt and you can't contact your primary care doctor, um, it's better to bring them into the emergency department. You know, I'd much rather see a kid and not find a serious problem than mm-hmm. have somebody wait and then bring in a kid who's really ill. They're floppy, uh, an infant that's floppy and has a weak cry. They're really dehydrated. Um, so I, I think it's better to err on the side of uh, being conservative. And if you're really concerned, take them to the emergency department. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I hope that helps. Yeah, I, I hope so. Well, if, if uh, they have any more questions, I'm sure they'll pass it through to us. Um, okay. So I... Um, there is uh, something that was brought up to me uh, several years ago, which was really interesting. Um, we have a product called Amber Alert, and it was originally designed for you know children who were, have been abducted, etc. Because when a parent or or anyone you know when, when there's an emergency, we a lot of people lose it. <laughs> you know, you, we uh-huh. can't think straight, or you know, we we get so intense over everything that that even describing what a child looks like, it's uh, very difficult. Um, And uh, the reason why we actually started to carry it wasn't just because it was amber alert for a child disappearing, but it also um, has the stats of, uh, it keeps, it's able to hold the stats of the medical history. Mm -hmm. A photo medical history of the child. And I, I looked at these people who produced it and I said, why couldn't we be using it for ourselves and not just for children? It's like, you know, when, because I work with a lot of elderly people as well. I mean, how great is it that, that if we walk into an emergency de- department 
and we hand you a key that plugs into the computer and everything just shows up. Yeah, there have been various um, iterations of that sort of thing. In fact, uh, you know how our pets, you can have a chip put in. Yes. There's actually chips that have been put in in people. Yes. And there's a marketing uh, a company where then you can scan this. You have to have it in the ED. You can scan them, get the information, and then uh, uh, get on the computer and look up their medical history. Mm -hmm. It has to be current and updated and so on. Um, and that's not available everywhere. And I think a lot of people are a little reluctant to have a chip put in there, which I understand. <laughs> but, I, uh, you know, one of the biggest problems or complications uh, um, for care in the emergency department is the history mm. and getting um, a good history, medications, allergies, medical problems, all that is so helpful. And, you know, when I get somebody that comes in with vague symptoms or even emergent symptoms and, yeah, I'm on medicines. Well, what are they? Well, I'm on a little white one. I'm on a red one. I'm on a black one. There's one that's shaped like this. It's this color. You know, it drives you crazy because I, it impacts their care. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, there are drug interactions that can happen. Um, you know, their medications may be causing their problem. And, um, you know, and that's so common. Oh, call my doctor. Well, it's Saturday at three in the morning. I mean, you know, that their doctor's not available. Um, you know, I can't get the history. So mm -hmm. if people, that sort of idea is, is so helpful to, to have information. So for adults in their wallet next to their, um, driver's license, you know, if they have a list of medicines, allergies, uh, medical problems, that's so helpful. If you have an abnormal EKG, you can uh, have it miniaturized and put it in your wallet. You know, so if somebody comes in with chest pain or shortness of breath, and and you know they have an abnormal electrocardiogram, now it might be normal for them, but mm -hmm. I don't magically know. But if they have an old EKG, oh, that is so helpful. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, oh, this is really helpful. I don't, I'm not so concerned about a coronary syndrome or a pulmonary embolism or something. Wanted to add something uh, to the other person that sent in the question, which was a great question. And David, your answer was really exceptionally great as usual. <laughs> but I wanted to add a little more that I think part of what's important again is that people start to take more interest in their own bodies and their own health and, and the bodies and health of, of family members and relatives and friends and know what's normal so that when something becomes abnormal, mm -hmm. you have a better indicator that this is abnormal and, okay, it was abnormal, but it only lasted for a moment. I'll just watch it over time, see if it ever comes back. But if it's something that you know that is not normal, your child is not acting normally, your spouse is not acting in their normal manner, and something occurred, that's another time to bring someone in just just to have that own knowledge and increase that knowledge. Don't leave it up to the doctors and the nurses and the healthcare professionals to know about your own bodies. Mm -hmm. David, yeah, that's true. Uh, tragedy happens in the emergency department, uh, and we've all seen great amounts of it. 
how do you deal with it? Have you ever broken down in the emergency department and, uh, and, or how do you deal with tragedy and <clears throat> move on? Well, you know, that's a, a tough one. I mean, you, you have to, in the background, have the understanding <clears throat> that you can't control everything, that not everybody is going to have an out a good outcome, and that uh, things are going to happen. Um, despite every intervention and evaluation that you have done for that particular patient, um, doing it the best way you can. And so uh, I, I think keeping in the in the mindset that we're there to help people, but realizing that we, we can't always, you know, I mean, it's just tragic when a kid's on a tricycle and they get run over in the driveway, mm. you know, grandma, you know, backs over them. I mean, that's just, that's just horrible, you know, and there's, there's just, you can do everything you, that's possible, but, you know, sometimes people are hurt too badly or, you know, things happen. And so, I mean, especially as uh, I became a parent, you know, I, you see a little kid that's, that's, uh, uh, has a devastating injury uh, or illness, you know, that really hits home more than when you aren't a parent, uh, you know. Um, and, and so I think there there are cases that are very difficult. And over the years, we've become more aware of the psychological impact that that a case like that has. And so we often are able to, you know, later talk about things with the ancillary services, the nursing, you know, and sort of uh, de-escalate and go over the case. And, uh, you know, then people can can deal with it more easily, you know. But it's never easy when you get a case like that. That th Those cases are, are, are brutal. Uh, they are. And then, then the hard part also is, okay, I just uh, – went in and diagnosed cancer and had to tell this person, or I had to tell parents that their child has died. And then it's like, okay, now I have to go see another patient. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it's just a, um, unrelenting sometimes. But um, yeah, I mean, I've had cases that have, you know, made me tearful and, and really upset and, you know, and, and trouble sleeping or thinking about them for long periods of times and still think about them. You know, it's just, sort of scars that we're going to carry with us. And, and, you know, it's, it's part of the job, you know, uh, which is, um, I, I think that doing it all the time, you get used to it, but you never get used to it. You know, you, you deal with it, but you, you never get used to it. And if you, if you, if you didn't feel things, then you should stop the job. You shouldn't be doing it. If you, if you don't have the empathy and you don't have feeling, then you're, you're burning out and you should be doing something else. That's a good point. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. I think uh, that something for me that always helped was when we did lose someone, a child or something uh, that we realized, yes, we lost a child, but now there's a whole family that's going to have to deal with that. And maybe I can help them in their healing process right away. I'm here right now to help them as they move forward because they're going to have the ripple effect of things that are going to be going on with them. And it's great to be able to help 
family members to start their coping process and to guide them in a way that may eventually be healing for them. And the other part that you brought up, I think, is very interesting that uh, we should know. When something is really big, especially in an uh, emergency department where it affects the whole hospital and there are many people that it got involved and there was a tragic outcome, what we've started to do, and you alluded to this, is we do have these uh, debriefing sessions where we invite everyone, including paramedics that might have been involved in bringing the people in uh, and people on the floor nursing uh, down the hall. We bring them in and we have discussions. We have roundtable discussions. And part of it is not just for the debriefing and getting our emotions out, but also everything we do in an emergency department is to help us learn to be better for the mm-hmm. for the future. So if if there were mistakes made or there were errors in some different areas or not even just errors, but what can we look at to improve this part of it? How can we get the paramedic from point A to point B more quickly in an effective manner with their patient? Uh, and how do we give the right medicine more quickly? How do we get them to someone else? All of this is debriefed and discussed. And then we learn from that and we change policies. And one of the things that you as a medical director, not just an emergency doctor, but as a medical director, you have the chance to change policies. And that's a great thing, isn't that? Yeah, it it is. You know, I mean, I enjoy taking care of patients, but if I can make a protocol change or change the way a patient is the flow in the emergency department to get things more quickly or certain medications given or or uh, pain management protocols to improve the efficacy and decrease side effects of, of pain medications, you know, I can impact a lot more patients than I can as an individual practitioner. Um, and so I think that's an exciting uh, part of, of having an administrative role in emergency medicine. Um, but, you know, the, the, the part about reviewing cases, I mean, I think that that, that is so important to evaluate and look at, you know, not only if there's a bad outcome, you know, obviously we're going to, you know, or or something was done wrong, we're going to try and review it and figure out how we can improve and and prevent uh, 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 an error or a a possible complication. But, um, you know, looking at the good cases, hey, what what happened here that made this case really go well? How can we learn from that? and improve on that um, even more. And, and I think that, you know, I'm always very interested in hearing complaints. Um, I, I mean, I don't really like to hear them, but they're very important. And I'm thankful when I hear a complaint because I want to find out, hey, what can we do to change things? And, and sometimes, and a lot of times, it's communication um, that uh, isn't as good as it should be. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I think that, that it's fascinating the evolution, my evolution of uh, uh, being a physician over the years, um, uh, and and learning. There's so much technical part of medicine, but how important the subjective uh, healing touches, which I think uh, I've mm-hmm. learned is more and more important as I've gotten more mature, shall we say, more gray here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, David, there's. A lot of um, rumor and mythology about 
emergency departments. Oh, you're going after, you're bleeding to death, and you have to fill out forms. You wait in the lobby for hours and hours. You have, you're never seen. Can you uh, talk to us about dispelling some of those myths and what it's like? What happens briefly when yeah. somebody does show up yeah. in an emergency I mean, department? Yeah, I mean, an emergency department. You're not going to be seen based on when you show up. You're going to be evaluated and treated based on the severity of your or potential severity of your medical problem. And so the French term triage comes into play mm. where it's sorting and you're sorted out. And so if you come into the emergency department with an ankle injury from spraining it two weeks ago and you're walking around versus a gunshot wound to the chest, well, you know, we're going to be seeing the gunshot wound to the chest first because obviously that's a potential life-threatening problem. Um, and so uh, you have to realize that because it's unscheduled care, we get floods of patients coming in intermittently. It isn't nicely spaced out over 24 hours. And so um, people that show up to the emergency department one of the things I'm proud of is that we take care of and evaluate everybody regardless of their ability to pay, their uh, ethnicity, their nationality, uh, their religion, their color, whether they're clean or dirty. I mean, we just, you know, that's what we do. We take care of people. But uh, we're going to be taking care of the most serious problems first. And there are, you know, there are protocols for life-threatening or potentially serious life-threatening problems, those patients are brought back and we're seeing them right away as they're getting information to register them so that we can order tests and so on. Um, the insurance part or lack of insurance part of it, I'm insurance blinded to when I see patients. And, and that's one of the things I love. I just take care of people and I do what I think is the right thing for those patients. And, and you know, it doesn't mean I'm going crazy ordering a bunch of tests that the patient doesn't need, but I'm trying to select out what needs to be done to, to evaluate, look for a serious problem, stabilize, and then decide on their disposition, admission, discharge, etc. Mm -hmm. um, so if you come in with a complaint that's probably, you know, not so serious, you've had a, a sinus discomfort for two weeks, and the emergency department is full, you may have to wait a while. Hopefully not. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we try and, and get people in and out and, and as soon as we can. But just based on the nature of the beast, because it's unscheduled care, uh, sometimes things get backed up. So I have a, a question for both of you. What if an individual comes in on an emergency, for example, like a gunshot wound, um, and there is like no relatives or you know how we have you know the point of contact no one that you're able to get hold of you don't know anything about this person and so you can't get authorizations for things to be done what happens in such a case like well if somebody shows up with an emergent condition um uh, basically there's um they're deemed to to, to uh, you don't need permission to treat them, basically. Mm. Uh, by the fact that they show up, um, they, you have a contract, uh, basically, to a duty 
to take mm-hmm. care of that patient, evaluate them, and treat them. Um, now, certainly, if you know um, it's a eleven-year-old kid and um, they're visiting somebody's house and they're sneezing, and somebody brings them to the emergency department who's not a relative, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we will evaluate them and see, hey, this doesn't look like a emergency problem and we can you know the try and call the guardian or whoever has legal um uh uh custody or guardianship and uh you know if there's some treatment or evaluation that's needed we'll try and call them in in that scenario but if it's a serious problem or potentially serious problem we're going to evaluate that patient Mm -hmm. um and certainly try and get contact with family or um, relatives or guardians uh, if we can. But we aren't going to delay care of a serious problem um, based on uh, the patient's unconscious and we can't, you know, get mm-hmm. permission. Mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that isn't going to happen. Because I always think of the situation where, like, if someone's in a car accident or something and, and you know, the firemen get them out and the person, everything stays in, but it gets caught on fire and you have no ID, you don't know where this person's from, you know, right. you know who the yeah. relatives are, and they're unconscious. I mean, what do you do? It's like, yeah. you know, there's well, so gonna, many different levels of, of yeah. you know, patient rights and everything. It's like, what happens? Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. And we're going to intervene and take care of that patient uh, to the best ability. You know, that brings up a, a point here. Um, to have information in your wallet, you know, so that we have that idea. Because if you came in unconscious... And, you know, we needed to put you on antibiotics because, we, you know, we're seeing a big mm-hmm. overwhelming infection or something. And you have written in your history or in your wallet that a penicillin allergy anaphylaxis, an overwhelming allergic reaction mm. when you have penicillin. Well, gosh, that's really important. And we're going to not give you penicillin or, or related things. But also it brings up a point about resuscitation. One of the things that we are experts in in emergency medicine is intervening in life-threatening problems. So that's a trauma, but it's an overwhelming infection, uh, somebody whose heart stops, they stop breathing. And so putting in a tube and putting them on a machine to help them breathe, doing chest compressions, giving all these drugs to get the heart started. Well, the worst thing in the world Mm. for the patient and for me is when a paramedic they bring in the 70-year-old person and they've started life support things and I'm doing all this stuff and I don't know anything about the patient. And then the family shows up a half hour later. They go, oh, well, that's Uncle Joe. He had cancer and he didn't want anything done. And it's like, well, you know, if I don't know, it's not like I can say, okay, uh, go to a heart attack clinic here and we'll treat you later. I mean, mm. we're we're going to intervene and do things. So, um. Having that information up front is so helpful. And also, say you have a chronic illness. Think about what do you want done, Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, I get people that come in that have end-stage heart problems, end-stage lung problems, end-stage kidney failure. They're on dialysis. And they haven't thought about, well, if I have trouble breathing, if I have uh, my heart stops, what do I want done? You know, do I want heroic measures being put on a ventilator, chest compressions, all these drugs? Um, and in some cases it may be appropriate to do those things. Some cases it isn't, but 
you need to try and make a decision and let your family and spouse know so that they aren't in a situation they're going, well, gosh, I don't know what I should do here. Um, you know, in the heat of the moment to have to make those decisions is really, is really hard. So trying to, trying to have that worked out in advance is very, I think, uh, paramount. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've talked to my wife and she's talked to me about what our wishes are. Uh, you know, the heroic intervention is really supposed to be for an unexpected cardiac arrest or unexpected, you know, uh, injury or something. And so somebody who has end-stage multiple medical problems or demented, they're in a nursing home, mm-hmm. contracted up, you know, our interventions have, these patients would have died years and years ago, but we're keeping them alive with tube feedings and mm-hmm. so on. And so a family that wants to keep that person alive when they're basically dying, you know, I, I think that uh, sometimes that Im- heroic stuff is really futile and it's not good for that patient. I mean, we're, I think we're torturing people sometimes. Mm-hmm. So trying to make those life decisions before the emergent tip over the edge into the, uh, you know, not breathing, heart stopped uh, situation is is key. Mm-hmm. Also to let uh, people like the paramedics know about it. Sometimes if you have some of these decisions made, you should leave something on a refrigerator. So if somebody shows up uh, in your house and paramedics get there and they're seeing a cardiac arrest, but they see on the refrigerator a do not resuscitate, this is my decision, sometimes it's good to know that so the paramedics don't do all of the things that they have to do to start the process in motion. Yeah. And, and if you have something that says, I do not want heroic measures, I don't want to be intubated, put on ventilator, I don't want chest compressions, that doesn't mean you aren't going to get care. You know, it may be appropriate to get IV fluids, antibiotics, certainly be comfortable with pain medications. You know, having a DNR, do not resuscitate, does not influence those things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very important. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean you aren't going to get care. It's just the the, s- the severity or the, the level of intervention is going to be a little different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm, thank you. Um, a question came in, and it was, uh, when you talk about dealing with trauma and critical care situations, would you consider the ER as being on the front lines? And if so, where did the ambulance crew... Uh, fit into the equation, and who is likely to see more traumatic events more frequently? Well, the, certainly the the ER is the front line, but the EMS, the emergency medical systems team, the dispatch, the paramedics, the EMTs are critical in that uh, early intervention. For most tr- big trauma, we want them to get that patient to us as soon as possible. Um, and, and, and having that coordination, preventing further injury by immobilizing the neck and cervical spine precautions, putting them on a hard board if there's a potential spine injury, all that sort of thing to prevent further injury is key. But it's getting them to the emergency department where we have more interventions uh, and uh, ability to evaluate the pa- patient is critical. So 
it's a team approach. Part of emergency medicine is interacting with the emergency medical services and overseeing the paramedics. Uh, we have, you know, base stations where there's radios. Now, they mm-hmm. can operate on certain uh, situations on protocols, but we're available for other, you know, questions or interventions that they might want to do en route. Um, a lot of hospitals, their uh, transport times are very short. There are multiple hospitals or their, um, you know, the, the area where the patients are coming from is just a few minutes away. So it's not such a big deal. I've worked at rural hospitals where it might be a one and a half hour transport. Yeah. I'm really out in the middle of nowhere. And so the interventions that they can do um, can be more important, but they're limited, you know, uh, into what they, they can do. Um, and so uh, I think the for big trauma, the scoop and run, you know, getting that patient to the emergency department quickly uh, so we can get the uh, other interventions going uh, is key. Mm. Mm. Um, another question had come in. Uh, often with the police force, after traumatic experience, such as a shooting, uh, shooting a suspect or similarly traumatic experiences, the officer is given a leave of absence to get their head straight. Is this something that's done in the ER department? Hmm. Well, I think if there's a shooting in the emergency department, that would probably... <laughs> Um, uh, lead to something like that. Uh, and, you know, uh, unfortunately, we're, we, the ER department, we're at high risk for injury and assault and things like that, which is uh, one of the unfortunate realities uh, of uh, society and emergency medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, we do have our uh, ability to have our little uh, conferences, as Glenn mentioned, where we sort of work through cases and deal with things. Um, we can uh, refer people or have people seen by a psychologist or psychiatrist to, to help deal with uh, stress. But I think the, there's also sort of a mindset, especially maybe with our older practitioners like myself. Um, it's just part of the job and we, you know, we deal with it. You know, I think having a healthy support system, having outside interests, getting appropriate sleep, you know, all those things are so important in uh, dealing with stress and, and uh, um, situations uh, that we deal with all the time. And let me add uh, another part of that answer. As a medical director, many times we will, we're always aware of what all of the other doctors and nurses have seen uh, throughout the day, and we are continuously evaluating them. If, these, if we see a case where it seems to be affecting a physician, then uh, we have conferences with that physician, and we talk about, are you affected more than normally? Are you okay? Do you want some time off? Do you need some help? If we also might be able to, as I said before, there's a team effort. Sometimes the doctor may not see it, but some of the nurses may say, you know, ever since that episode, Dr. X has been acting a little abnormal when it comes to this kind of a case. So they bring that mm-hmm. to the attention of the medical director and the medical director will have a, a talk with the doctor. And sometimes they will uh, take some time off if they need it. But like David said, this is what we do. 
So our time off is exactly whenever we're off. That is our time off. And we mm. do get ourselves back together again with support systems. But yes, if it's necessary, if it seems to affect someone uh, more seriously, more emotionally, where they're not capable of uh, acting appropriately in the emergency department, we do have interventions and, and recommendations <laughs> and, and take care of people, mm. yeah. our people. David, yeah. uh, in, in every uh, interview, we always ask our guest for a special health tip that you uh, have figured out in your life through your own experiences and your own journey uh, that uh, our viewers could benefit from. Do you have something you would like to share with us? Well, it's not a specific medical intervention, but I think um, enjoying yourself, enjoying life, um, getting appropriate rest, moderation in things, uh, and and having outside interests, um, I think leads to more happiness, uh, and I, I think it, it's reflective in, in health. Um, people that have good relationships um, often are more healthy. I mean, there's been all the studies showing that people that have pets or they they have a significant other as they get older and older, um, have better health and less health problems. So I think uh, looking at your life and uh, dealing with the stress that we all have and trying to deal with it in a positive way so it doesn't turn in on yourself and manifest itself with health problems, with blood pressure or heart problems or migraines or ulcers or some of these other things, I think that that's uh, the biggest thing that I found over time. And, and you know, as, as uh, one of my neighbors told me years ago, he goes, nobody outlives a lifetime. And, you know, that's the end result of our lives here. We are going to pass away. And, you know, you need to enjoy things. You know, we can't just put things off forever. Uh, I see so many people that they work, 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 then they retire and then they have a heart attack, you know. And so you want to... You want to uh, um, enjoy things along the way, but in moderation, you know, in, you know, but the, the old, what is it? So stop and smell the roses. I think that's, that's my word of advice here or phrase of advice. Very wise. Let me ask <laughs> you one more thing. We've discussed so many parts of emergency medicine and uh, clearly there's so much more. Is there anything that you would like to bring out? to our viewers uh, that we haven't discussed up until now? <clears throat> well, I think having a make decisions about your interventions and healthcare, you know, in advance is good, you know, but, but I had a list here of, you know, why come to the emergency department? And we talked about it a little bit for pediatric patients, but um, for our uh, more mature people, you know, if you're having chest pain that's not usual for you, um, uh, unexpected shortness of breath, sweating or diaphoresis, you know, those can be serious problems. And so those are things to consider going to the emergency department for. Also, there's more realization or... Um, uh, uh, education out there about stroke syndromes 
Um, but, you know, if you're suddenly weak on one side or you can't speak or you can't see out of one eye, it's amazing how I see people over and over again who don't come to the emergency department and they wait a day or two. You know, well, it didn't hurt and grandma couldn't move one side of her body, but it, it didn't hurt. So we just waited to see what would happen. And, you know, strokes often do not have pain. So if you're having an unusual neurologic problem or you're fainting, um, you're throwing up blood, you know, those are, those are potentially serious problems. So, you know, consider going to the emergency department for those things. Yeah. Don't try and walk it off. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Walk it off. That's right. Chris, Christina, any, uh, questions for David? Oh, I we have, we have to have him back and, and I know we're going to have because it's my favorite specialty, I'm planning on making this some kind of a regular uh, <laughs> portion of our show, interviewing other emergency physicians and maybe even at some point getting a group of uh, emergency physicians together uh, for a uh, chat. Well, Do you uh, have any questions, Christine? Oh, I, I think we could go on for days, actually. <laughs> days, it would be days with Dave, you know. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's um, anything to do with medicine. There's so It's so vast. It's, it really is that other space, you know, and universe that that uh, so many of us, even the short time, you, you've really shared so much wonderful information for us that, you know, we as laymen out here know what to expect when we come in. Um, and I think uh, the questions go on and on because, you know, when, when we think of the emergency department, I, I think I believe a lot of us, I think we already get sweaty palms and we can feel that adrenaline rush of, ugh, you know, <laughs> like, like hopefully we all never have to walk in there, you know, for anything. Um, but uh, thank goodness that we have individuals like you who just love that art of healing and the the adventure, really, that ER department sounds like a true adventure. <laughs> the Indiana Jones, you guys are the Indiana Jones of medicine, I think. <laughs> it's fantastic in there. When you get the sweaty palms, we get excited and we're, we love it because we're knowing we're making a difference. Yes. Um, and it's, it's just so gratifying. But the gratification sometimes is just only amongst ourselves because many of the people that we take care of uh, and save their lives, we never see them uh, mm -hmm. when they wake up in the hospital and they're gone. Uh, we never hear from them again. Sometimes they show up and thank us like David uh, brought up before. But uh, many of the times it's just as a team, we learn to work together and to sort of thank ourselves for doing a great job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, at this time, I'm grateful to my very special friend, special guest, and special colleague, Dr. David Tefankian, for coming to share his wisdom and expertise with us. I also want to thank my healers and teachers throughout my lifetime who have brought me to where I am today. And I look forward to joining with Christina next week as we search another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy. And until that time, I wish you all optimal health. Thank mm -hmm. you, David, so much. Thank, thank you, you so much, David. And we'd like to thank our audience for joining us again this week. And we invite your comments. Um, if you scroll down on the screen, you'll see a little comment box there. We invite your comments, even though the show is over and you might be viewing the, the um, replay of it. 
we are still here to take your comments. And I do know that uh, Glenn and his team of doctors are always very welcoming to answer your questions. I um, would like to let you know that you can also follow Glenn at myyogahub.com forward slash G Woolman. And on Twitter, you could follow him at Glenn Woolman. And that is his name spelled all together. And, uh, and of course, through his website, glennwoolman.com, where you can also learn about his metaphor square breath, which um, I do believe that he created when, as he, when he was working in that ER department, right, Glenn? That's true. And that's uh, <laughs> one of the ways that I've relieved stress many times and allowed me to go from one to another. There you go. So that would be a wonderful uh, place for that he would invite you to go to. And don't forget, uh, every Tuesday, we are here with Magical Medical Tour at 1030 Pacific Standard Time, 130 Eastern Time, and on Wednesdays for the Trinity of Life, which airs at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And we have just begun to bring our shows into podcasts. We're uh, transferring them over to podcasts, and they can be found through the iTunes directory. So just search for Yoga Hub or YHTV. So we invite you again uh, to join us next week for our shows and tomorrow for Trinity of Life here on yogahub.tv, Y-O-G-A-H-U-B.tv. Thank you all for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you again. Namaste. Namaste.